<laughs> hey, everybody. Welcome to the podcast. Just want to say thank you so much for listening. Um, if you like what you hear, do us a favor. Go subscribe on Spotify or Apple Music or there are other podcast platforms, I'm sure. But yeah. I'm betting no one uses them. <laughs> I think Spotify is it where most people go. Yeah. Go to Spotify. Yeah. And go to Instagram. Give us a follow. Say hello. Totally. Yeah. Awesome. See you guys in a second. It comes like a fleeting memory. Whatever you you grab just turns to dust. dust. Like eye contact with a stranger. stranger It's a dream that you get to here that's about all we know it's all we know we're on the shores to the shores <laughs> to the shores cheers Whew. man so matt and i before the podcast we were like going through all this stuff and i don't know we got a, we had a lot of things but we don't know what they are i think there's a lot of noise right now and i'm in search of signal mm-hmm. like there's so much going on culturally politically financially um philosophically psychologically mm-hmm. yeah you sent me that podcast uh who was that guy matthias desmond mm-hmm. yeah that was really fascinating just talking about the mass uh mass formation and mm-hmm. and uh how that works and it's kind of like it, it seemed like it was kind of like groupthink kind of kind of thing to me it was like where everyone starts to feed off of each other and it's almost like true believers and cultish cultish kind of ideas um but yeah, it's like, it's, yeah. So it was a podcast, uh, the Aubrey Marcus podcast. And he interviewed this, I think he's a, a this, uh, Matthias Desmond, I think is a psychologist. Statistician and psychologist. Right. Yeah. Statistician. <laughs> is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Statistician. That sounds right to me. Um, and psychologist. And he had some really incredibly clarifying things to say about the COVID pandemic in our cultural and psychological response to it. Mm -hmm. And he introduces this term I'd never heard before called mass formation, Mm -hmm. which is an, I think another way to say mass psychosis, Mm -hmm. which is something I have heard. Yeah. Um, really excellent conversation. Highly recommend you go take a listen to it, Mm. but he talks about the preconditions for mass formation. Um, I think there were three, help me if you remember one was a sense of loneliness Mm Another is decrease in social bonds. And a third is a high amount of free-floating anxiety, Mm. meaning anxiety that's not attached to to something that you can easily identify. And under those conditions, mass formation or mass psychosis tends to take place. He uses the Salem witch trials as an example of this. There's a lot of free-floating anxiety. Social bonds are weak. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of loneliness. And so you identify... you identify something to attach the anxiety to, which increases social bonds and decreases loneliness. And this thing takes over and he makes the point that it, it, it actually, it, it's not that it doesn't matter whether the thing you attach the anxiety to is real. It actually helps if it's not real, Hmm. it helps the mass formation Yeah, because it becomes ritualistic and indicates in group out group. Um, it's a little chilling, mm-hmm. actually. Yeah, it's really fascinating. I also, whenever he was talking about the, uh, 
just not being able to look at all the different factors. Like what happens if we lock down? We were just so focused on one factor, which was people not dying. Right. That, <clears throat> that if, if anybody who was going to present a business plan to somebody would say, okay, Hey, we're going to do this thing. Okay. What all are all the factors associated with this thing? You know, right. so we're going to take this to market. It's like, you're going to look at it from multiple points of view and figure out what, what is the best course of action? Okay. So what we do these lockdowns, um, people are going to be lonely, possibly suicide rates could go up, you know, our kids, social development, uh, being outside of their, um, not with their friends and being, uh, you know, in education, you know, lower income people who don't have the, can't maybe afford their parents can't afford to necessarily be with them and help them with school mm-hmm. could have a huge impact on, on lower income kids receiving the education that they'll need in order to move into the future. It's like none of those factors were really addressed. When he points out the thing that I think was most compelling to me that he pointed out was that there was no discussion of opportunity cost Mm -hmm. lost, meaning, you know, just take a slice of the puzzle, which is like, we spent a bunch of money on COVID relief, trillions of dollars, and when you spend money, it's not just about what that money is doing. You also have to consider all the places that you're not spending the money mm. and compare that. And he sort of pointed out, it's like, what could you have done with that money if we didn't spend it this way? If we just had that money and we looked around and said, what are we going to spend this on? Mm-hmm. You know, could we end world hunger, for example? Like, yeah. um, and there was no discussion of opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah, which is, which is really, um, which is really fascinating. <clears throat> just the idea of like what what we could have spent the, spent the money on. But then also it's like, I think in that whole, when you're looking at the opportunity costs and you're going through all the different factors and presenting them, it's like, yes, you could come back to the conclusion is yes, we need to lock down, but it wasn't really presented in that way. You know, it's right. like, it was, it was also sort of like a progressive, um, flatten the curve, you know, the, the goalposts kept moving and it's like at some point, like, there's no, there's no reevaluation, but it was that, always like people are dying and it's like, so it's like this fear, this, this almost psychosis over it. And it's like, it's like, yes, that is true. But what else are, what else are we doing by having these lockdowns and closing businesses and right. schools and well, all and that kind of stuff? And that's when he points out that, you know, once, once the mass formation sets in, because this has puzzled me, uh, and I know I've said it before that, you know, when if you remember back to like February of 2020 mm-hmm. COVID, what is COVID? We don't know. It could it be bad. It might be really bad. We mm-hmm. don't know. So many things we didn't, we didn't know. Yeah. Um, and so I think we actually had, you know, perhaps a properly calculated response in, mm-hmm. in, totally. in the face of the unknown. It's <sighs> like, what should we do? Let's not leave the house and probably wipe your groceries down. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, socially distance and all of that. And then we never changed our behavior once we started to know more. Mm-hmm. And he pointed out that once the mass formation takes hold, those things that you do to signal your, your um, participation in the mass formation don't have to be logical or reasonable. As a matter of fact, it's better when they're not. Um, which helped me understand more why we didn't change our uh, risk analysis mm-hmm. 
because we weren't doing risk analysis. After we set, set it, it was about the narrative and complying with the narrative and showing our involvement in the narrative. Mm-hmm. And I think that helps explain why, you know, now 20 months later, we've had a vaccine out for 10 months and, um, you know, efficacy of the vaccine aside, we're, we're saying that it works and yet we're all still wearing masks. Mm-hmm. It's like, what's the logic here? What's the reasoning here? And you don't hear anybody talking about that. Yeah. And we're, you hear we're Anthony, as if it doesn't work, actually, <laughs> we're at, we're behaving as if it doesn't work mm-hmm. when, while saying it does work mm-hmm. and why this is so puzzling to me. And I think actually what's going on is we are, we are wanting to signal that we're still a part of the narrative mm-hmm. and without the mask, you can't really signal that anymore. The pandemic would be over then. And then you'd lose the narrative that solved your free floating anxiety and weak social bonds and loneliness. Mm-hmm. So to give that up, it's kind of like there's an opportunity cost there too, mm-hmm. to participating in the pandemic. If you give it up, you have to, well, you know, what's the cost of that? Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> you know, I think for a lot of people, it has come to a point where participation in a political cultural narrative is the, the sort of value measuring stick by which we say whether or not we are good people. Mm-hmm. And then that's what the narrative is saying to us. Yeah. Um, and it falls on either side of a line of the vaccination or a mask or um, the political aisle too. And so to give those things up and say, Hey, we don't have to worry about COVID anymore means that we won't know if we're good people or anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Which is always easier if it's black and white, it's so much easier to kind of give yourself that those parameters as far as like, okay, I'm within, I'm within the parameters of what is accepted Mm -hmm. and I can, I can signal that. And you're signaling back to me. Okay, cool. We're, we're together in this. Right. But if the underlying factors start to crumble, it's like you either have to readjust those things and figure out like, what is your, um, I guess kind of where you stand and how you relate to people again. Like, you know, even this week, like we, we went to uh, masks optional for our staff, you know, and it's been mass recommended, uh, for a while, but it's just so interesting to see how people interact differently without mask on. It's, it really is different. And it's like everybody, everybody knows it and everybody sees it. And there's a sort of like, Hey, look, you, I mean, I can't mm. tell you how many times like I you act like you haven't seen them in a while. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Right. There's, there's something about that, you know, what does that do to our, do to our psyche, you know, as, as mm-hmm. far as like, and how we relate to people, right. uh, there's so much, I mean, obviously in, in children and babies, like facial expressions and cues are so huge. Right. It's not that we just, we lose that as adults, you know, it's something that we maybe file back into our, you know, memory that we No, It's actually, I think, um, Heather Haying made this point on the dark horse podcast last week. I think mm. that there's actually information that we, um, communicate through facial expression that mm-hmm. we don't know how to, or, or can't, and maybe that's saying the same thing mm-hmm. with words. Mm-hmm. Like the human experience is so complex and rich and yeah. deep. Like to think that we have power enough over language to 
communicate everything that we could communicate through a mask. It's, it's asinine. It's, it's the tiny little scrunches of the face. It's mm-hmm. the, it's the tiny movement and curl of the lips. I mean, you have more muscles. It, you have an astounding amount of muscles that control your mouth. Mm-hmm. And we are tuned as humans to identify things in that, in mm-hmm. other people through that. So yeah, there's a lot lost when you can't see people's faces. Yeah. And it's all this like subconscious, you know, or unconscious that we, that we just sort of have learned over, over long periods of time that we just react to. And it's not maybe something we identify with, but right. it's like, it's, these are things I could say, like, I don't, I don't really understand why, but it's like, you know, talking with somebody with a mask on versus not a mask on is like, there is a difference. Do right. I know why? No, I could tell you some things, but there it's, it's enough of a, significance that it's very obvious to me that mm-hmm. there's something lost in communication yeah. with somebody that has a mask on. Right. Well, but I think that they're serving currently a categorical purpose <clears throat> for people, <clears throat> whether you have one or not answers a question. It, it communicates something to, yeah. to me about what you think mm-hmm. and whether or not, and, and what you think of me and, um, you know, what side of some moral line we both fall on. Mm-hmm. And I think another, another point that Heather made in that podcast and actually Barry Weiss interviewed, I think it's Ross Duthat uh, from the New York times on her latest episode of the, of her podcast, honestly, which is my number one podcast recommendation right now. Mm-hmm. Um, it's so well done and I love Barry. Um, but she was interviewing him primarily. He just wrote this memoir about, uh, getting Lyme disease Hmm. and Lyme disease is really interesting because it's super difficult to diagnose. Um, and then once you diagnose it, there's all of these oddities about it. The symptoms are apparently somewhat different in a lot of people. And after you've been diagnosed with it, after about six months, you're no longer considered to have it. Although people, some people struggle their whole lives with it. Hmm. And so after that, it's called either chronic Lyme or long Lyme which is, you know, the same as like long COVID, same concept. Mm -hmm. And the thing is like the medical community has no idea what to do with chronic Lyme Mm -hmm. or long Lyme because it doesn't fit a diagnostic criteria. It doesn't fit within a category. Oh, do you you know any more about that? Why? Or, um, I can't speak too intelligently on it, but Mm -hmm. the point that I want to make is that, you know, we use categories in order to understand the world and understand our place in the world. And it's super effective and necessary, but often, if not almost always our are the categories that we create have some amount of, of arbitrary nature to them. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, it's like, how do we divide up the color the, name, the colors in the color spectrum? Mm-hmm. You know, when one turns to another, we draw that line arbitrarily. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> and even the number of colors is, is arbitrary, mm-hmm. but it's like this with disease too. It's like whether or not you have a disease is based upon whether you fit into some threshold or some category that is defined and you could fall just on either side of that line. And we say you have, you do or don't have this mm-hmm. when things are much more complicated than that. And so the thing is like, he was telling his story about like several years into struggle into this chronic illness that was affecting his life and no doctors knew what to do with him. And he sort of found himself, you know, in these weird niche 
areas of the internet talking to people about what might have worked for them. And he's ended up in this place of, you know, relying on anecdotal evidence, anything that might change his, his, um, state of being. Mm -hmm. And we have drawn and built walls up around categories as a result of COVID. Mm. You know, even the way we throw around the word science is this way. Mm. This is the science. That is not the science. In life and disease and virtue and value and morality don't fit so easily into those categories. We have to muscle them in there. Mm-hmm. What's well, like... Uh something in, in that with you and Allison were talking about sort of uh, after you guys had COVID and, and just sort of the same, some of the things that seem to kind of linger beyond yeah, right. just, just the having it. And it's like, I wonder too, is like how much, how much does some of these things are, are more psychological than they are as actually from the disease, you know, it's like, or the, 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 the virus, you know, it's like, because if something affects you and has has a has an impact on you pretty intensely, it's like it, it does leave a mark, you know. Right. And so, <clears throat> like, what is what is that? I mean, even just I mean, it's it's not even necessarily just having COVID. It's also two years of this sort of existential stress of what is this? How do we deal with this? Okay, here's what I'm being told. Okay, I'll follow the rules, but something of this doesn't make sense. This makes sense. This doesn't make sense. There's so many like things right. that were unknown that there's a sort of existential stress on on all of us for the last two years. Yeah. And how does that manifest? Because it's not something that, you know, that is tangible, which we can like, you know, there's a threat. Someone's trying to shoot me, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, it's mm-hmm. like, and you, it's not black and white, black like and that. white. Yeah. yeah. And so I, again, that's, those are some of my questions with a lot of this, where we're, where we're, where we've been, where we're coming out of is <clears throat> how much of that just psychological stress that we're all carrying around. Well, yeah. In my experience, you know, COVID came into my household. My kids showed symptoms first. Mm-hmm. And it took me a couple of days and one, one evening I was feeling really out of it, like, uh, super loopy. And so I took a rapid test and it was negative. Mm-hmm. And then the next day I felt it worse. I took another rapid test and it was positive. Mm-hmm. And then I got a fever, fever lasted a few days and then broke. And then I took another test and it was negative. Yeah. But mm-hmm. the next whole next week I was like, very tired. I slept mm-hmm. a lot, slept a lot at night, napped like twice a day, heavy fatigue, brain fog persisted. So, you know, we draw these categorical lines. Like when did I get COVID? Was it when I tested positive? Mm-hmm. And when did I no longer have it? Was it when I tested negative? I mean, that wasn't my experience. Mm-hmm. Still experienced something after that. And, you know, and, the, and then the strange thing was <clears throat> once the fatigue and brain fog lifted, like a, a fairly strong amount of depression set in. Mm-hmm. And I was asking myself the same question. Like, what is this? Is this a, is this a physical symptom of COVID or is this the fact that like 
I've been kind of out of it for two weeks and unproductive and that's hard for me. And I'm mourning that. And also like my brother's wedding happened during that time and I had to miss it. And you know, all of these other things that mm-hmm. are affecting me emotionally. And then I wonder, okay, is this another arbitrary line that I'm drawing though? Like mm-hmm. to say it's either something physical happening in my body or something psychological happening in my mind. Mm-hmm. Like why do we draw that distinction as if it matters? Well, it's, I think it's part of it is like, it's kind of, both. I, I experienced this, I've seen this with me in business. You know, I'll be really stressed. I won't really know that I'm stressed and then I'll feel it in my body. Usually my back goes out or something like that. And then I realize like how much stress I've been carrying hmm. and it takes a period of time that to kind of come out of that, you know? So it's, it wasn't like, so I, I would, I, again, this is just me pontificating on this is like, I don't, not that this is necessarily true, but it's like, I think too, it's like, there's possibly an I part of it too is like when we get sick and then it causes us to slow down, but also causes us to deal with a mm-hmm. lot of other stuff True. that we might not have been dealing with up to that point. You right. know? Um, if you keep your life full enough and moving at a fast enough pace, there's mm-hmm. a lot of things that just sort of trail you in the wake that you don't have to deal with. And then you slow down and that wake overtakes you mm-hmm. <clears throat> and you all of a sudden you have to deal with your, with your thoughts and emotions and, Totally. I mean, that's, I, I've, I've seen that just in business, a pattern kind of with me. It's just like, Oh shit. <laughs> I have to acknowledge like, Oh no, yeah. this is, this has been really difficult or tough. You know, it's like, but usually it takes a lot for me to actually acknowledge that. <laughs> right. <laughs> but it always shows up in my body first before I will acknowledge it. So well, maybe that's just where you acknowledge it first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then I can kind of, then it starts to kind of, I have to deal with other stuff. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Maybe I don't necessarily deal with it, but, (laughs) (laughs) but at least it's a red flag and I see, oh yeah, there it is. (laughs) Right. All right. See you later. (laughs) I mean, I wonder if we can, you know, if you, if you notice that something always comes up first in your body, but it may be, and you identify that it originated though from more of a psychological space, if you can then train yourself to tune in and identify it before it hits the body. Totally. Yeah. And I would imagine you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's just like that sort of that self-awareness, you know, um, you know, you see it. I mean, I even like just doing more yoga and stuff like that. Like I see, I can see in my body where I have stress or like, Oh wow, I'm really stiff here, or something like that. Or where, like, usually I would just be like, ah, da, da, just keep going through my day, you know, and not, yeah. not really worry about it. But it's like I probably deal with some of that stuff. And that's a physical stress or a physical representation of maybe something more, but, um, but I'm definitely more aware of it. You know, I see that with Allison, with she's kind of working through some food stuff and seeing, uh, uh, I don't know, kind of seeing how different foods affect her. You know, it's like, but a lot of times we just don't even think about that. We just kind of, push on and it's not a part of our, mm-hmm. but then also the thing about it was like, it was like you can almost spend your whole life doing that too. You know, <laughs> well, we're, we're really good at adaptation. Mm-hmm. You know, you can get used to almost anything. Yeah. And then once you're used to it, your consciousness doesn't really have to deal with it all that much anymore. And it's not much of a problem. Mm-hmm. You know, you even saw that pushed in the narrative of mask wearing mm-hmm. with children, especially because mm-hmm. it's, it's difficult to get them to wear it. Um, it's more controversial. And so a lot of people were saying, you know, well, the, the, my kids have gotten used to it. It's fine. Mm-hmm. And I think, well, that's not a, that's not a 
good thing. Like that's not evidence of a good thing. Your, your ability to get used to something doesn't mean that it's good. Yeah. You know, the human body can get used to constant, uh, like the constant presence of alcohol in its system too. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean that it's good. Yeah, totally. Um, So, you know, you, we should be aware of that. Cause I think we do that with our body all the time. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you know, Oh, this food makes me feel slightly bad, but you know, Oh, well, as long as my attention is fed up elsewhere and I'm not having to think too much about dis- the discipline of my diet, yeah. then I can kind of drown that out and it's fine. I'm mm-hmm. used to it, you know? Which is, I mean, I think there's a, you know, I think there's the, maybe the negative side, there's also the positive side to that too, is that we are very resilient people. Right. It's like we can. No, it's a, to- it's a great thing, mm-hmm. but you got to be careful with it too. Yeah, exactly. Cause it's like, I, I see the, I, I see the, the extremes of, of both of those as far as like one is, you know, you don't pay attention at all and you just don't give a shit and you just beat your body to death, you know? Yeah. And the other is like just hypersensitive to, you know, if if you have a, a whiff of milk, you know, mm-hmm. you're like, Oh no, a whiff of milk. I've never heard of a whiff of milk <laughs> taking just, anybody out, just smelling it. I mean, <laughs> you get their lactose problems. Right. You know, it's like, well, yeah, that would be sort of like the hypo hypochondriac. Mm-hmm. Like I'm so risk averse that I'm just not engaging in anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's like, and then, then you, then I also think about and along these lines is that we do need to put stresses on our body, you know, to a certain degree, you know, um, you know, whether it be, well, I was just thinking of, um, well, I mean, working out is definitely one of those. That's kind of a good stress, right. you know, it's like, um, I mean, but your, it also hurts, you know, your body and your mind need stress. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, the example that comes to mind physically is, um, you know, people who go spend any amount of time in the international space station, their bodies are pretty fucked when they come back mm-hmm. and it's taken us a long time to figure out how to invent ways for their to, them to keep their bodies, uh, in like in shape mm-hmm. because if they don't, it's like they lose all this bone mass, they have all kinds of problems. Um, and over the past, what has it been 40 years that that space station has been circling the globe 17 times a day, mm-hmm. we've come up with ways and we've been able to keep people there longer and longer. Mm-hmm. But it's like your body needs the stress of gravity mm. to stay relatively functional. Yeah. And you need the stress of exercise, whether that's just the simple act of walking to stay functional. You mm-hmm. sit down all the time, your body degrades you lay in a bed, you're sick and lay in a bed all the time. Hmm. You have all kinds of problems like bed sores. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, I'm sorry. Bugs, <laughs> bugs and, <fly> face. <laughs> well, and there's also that part too, is like, like we also need like a certain amount of stress. Like, you know, you see people who are, are very wealthy. It's like, they don't have any good stress in their life. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's kind of real and tangible, you know? Yeah. Like, but then someone who is always under stress, like where's my next food, where's my food going to come from? My next meal, where am I get water? And it's like, you know, that can almost kind of like kind of kill you also, you know? Right. Um, but that we do need to, we do need to have something to overcome kind of like the whole hero's journey. It's like, there's something evolutionarily built into us that we need something to, to overcome. 
we might have gotten into our last podcast, but it's like we need a mission. We need something that's grand. Oh, we did get this last podcast, but you know, if we if we shoot too too low, it's like you know, we kind of oh shoot, I guess kind of come up short as far as like what we actually need to be healthy and survive. Um, if our goals are too small, and again, I think it's relative and subjective to the person, but. Well, we kind of all need something that's just a little bit out of reach, mm-hmm. you know, to attain to, you know, like today I could do 10 push ups. tomorrow I'm going to do 15, you know, mm-hmm. um, you know, I read one book a month this year. I'm going to read two books a month this, this next year. You know, it's like something that kind of pushes us a little bit. Yeah. But it's interesting too. So the word balance starts coming to mind. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when it comes to stress, someone in an extreme amount of stress, you, you might rightly say the solution to most of your problems is to remove this extreme stress. Mm. But that's not, that's not an answer that scales mm-hmm. because no stress has its own problems too. Mm-hmm. You need balance. It's the idea of, of order versus chaos. Mm. Complete chaos will absolutely flatten you. Mm-hmm. Complete order well, there's nothing to do. There's nowhere to go. There's almost no you to even exist in it because you can't move. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, you, you need, you need something to strive against Mm -hmm. whether that's a small goal, but even that becomes problematic because it's not as if you can scale up the number of pushups you do indefinitely. Mm -hmm, Uh It's like, been doing this for five years. I do 2,345 pushups every day, you know, yeah. <laughs> at some point that's got to change, mm-hmm. you know? So maybe at some point that becomes something that's imposing its own, uh, its own limitation. And you say, okay, now I'm going to, I don't know what you would do, mm-hmm. uh, switch from pushups to pull-ups. I don't know, or from calisthenics to, uh, uh, weightlifting or, change something's got to change it's Mm -hmm. almost like change is imperative Mm -hmm. to health yeah it's even that even that sense sort of like where it goes like it's like there's there's certain things like that that would be like a a body thing the push-ups you know it's like so you take care of your body okay i'm gonna do these certain things and kind of push it in a certain way but at some point you're focusing too much on your body you need to focus more on your mind and like Mm -hmm. working out that way well you can also go too far there. It's like, well then maybe spiritually, you know, it's like maybe professionally, maybe, you know, like there's, there's all these areas that we kind of have to tend to, you know, uh, as a father, as a husband, as, you know, it's like, there's so many areas that we have to sort of improve and, and focus on and put stressors in our life. Cause mm-hmm. like anytime you're going to grow, it's like, you have to have, it, has, it takes some sort of stress in order to grow. Right. Um, so it's like, I think there's also maybe just, there's an awareness of, I think that's where wisdom comes into play. You know, it's like being able to apply, uh, knowledge correctly. You know, it's like, what do I need right now in my life or right now in my life? I need rest. Mm-hmm. Well, okay. But after 10 months of rest, you know, you're not going to be yeah. in a good place. You're not going to be in a good place. You so know? how much rest do you need? Mm-hmm. And, it's and that's hard to do, right? To like understand mm-hmm. how much of something you need. Mm-hmm. And so I think often, especially with rest, mm-hmm. we tend to, or, or I say we, I'll say you and I probably mm-hmm. will tend to say, I need rest 
but I don't know how much I need or how much I can get away with taking. That's a really hard calculation to make. Mm-hmm. What if I just don't make that calculation and don't take the rest I need and just power through, <laughs> you know, that might be easier. Yeah, yeah. And so you don't yeah. take the rest. Yeah. And the, the, the problem with that and the danger with that is that that works, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. it works until it falls apart catastrophically. <laughs> totally until it does. It. Yeah. It's like you get to, it reminds me of my, um, my computer, my, my work computer. Mm-hmm. It's like, you know, the, the software is all controlled by the, uh, IT department. Mm-hmm. And so when the, system needs to update, it'll pop up a thing and be like, your system needs to update. You can do it now or you can postpone. And you know, it always pops up in the middle of a meeting or something. And mm-hmm. so you've got to, you postpone yeah. and then you postpone and it says, great, you can postpone three more times. <laughs> and so it pops up the next time you're like, ah, it's not a good time. Cause it, it's not like a normal computer updating. It takes like half an hour or something. Oh yeah. And so you postpone again, then you postpone again. And the last time it's just like, close all your stuff. It's going to do it now, <laughs> you know, and it's never at a good time, uh-huh. you know? And so, and it just shuts down and it's honestly like, see, I kind of secretly love it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry guys, gotta go. <laughs> no, cause it's like, it's not my fault. Like I can't do anything for 30 minutes, uh-huh. <laughs> um, you know, but, but, uh, uh, who is it? I, I believe so Scott Peck, author, he's a psychologist, wrote a number of books. I read one that he wrote called The Road Less Traveled. And I don't know if this was his quote or maybe he was quoting Nietzsche, but he said, um, failure to forthrightly and voluntarily engage in suffering hmm. breeds is, is the source of all neuroses. Oh, that's so fantastic. Yeah. So it's like postponement Mm-hmm. the thing that you postpone only builds in power. Mm. And the longer you keep it hidden, the more you don't know what it is until it finally emerges as something you don't recognize. And all of a sudden you're mentally unwell. Yeah. You're suffering neurosis, mm. you know, and where did that come from? Well, that's going to be really hard to identify because you're probably going to have to unpack years of things that you don't even fully remember mm-hmm. in order to unwind what it is that you kept brewing in your unconscious. Yeah. <clears throat> wow. You got me, uh, you got me thinking a lot of things there. Yeah. There's a lot of that, that makes, that makes a lot of sense. Like, I mean, for me, when I went crazy back in the day, it was like, it's like, how did I get there? It's like, it wasn't like just one day. It wasn't a week. It wasn't right. two months or three months. You know, it was, it was like, it was sort of like a, a, a slow eating away of my concept of reality mm-hmm. until I didn't even know it had slipped. Right. And so that was my reality. You know, it's like, and then as, as I came out of that was going or kind of, kind of coming out of it. It's like, I felt two worlds pulling me, you know, it's like one was the world that I believed I was a part of. And the one that is, or you know, I say the real world, but even that's kind of like a, that, that's a whole nother. Yeah. It's another <laughs> one of those potentially arbitrary categorizations. Yeah, totally. <laughs> but, but also that was a fascinating to fascinating thing to me was like, 
is like the real world is like, wow, I know where I was, was not that. Mm-hmm. But then it also made me more aware of like what I thought was or what or how I'm supposed to act or what the, what the real world or we're telling ourselves the real world is, you know, it's like, um, like that was kind of like, it kind of got, it was a little bit confusing because I kind of found this, this spot where it's like, okay, Hey, there's this like, there's this sort of like normalcy area that people function in. And that's this sort of like a cultural, we kind of build it culturally to kind of give us like a, a sort of safe, safe area that we all can kind of function in that we've kind of all agreed upon, you know, it's like there's healthy and unhealthy things about this, you know? And so I found that really kind of fascinating, kind of like I got to get back into the the circle of that, you Mm -hmm. know? And, Mm -hmm. but then it's also like the, um, it kind of made, I was kind of aware of like what, what things that we sort of accept as true and, and safe and how we really don't, we really don't, it's something we just, we just act out. We don't really know why we're acting it out, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, I love that. I think in part, the things that we accept as true and safe functionally exist in a category that I think has a different name, hmm. which is things we don't have to think about. Yeah. I think it's Jordan Peterson makes this point about how we, we don't, we don't really interface with things as what they are until they're a problem. Hmm. So like he uses the example of a car. Mm-hmm. It's like, you have a car, right? Yeah, I've got a car. And he's like, no, you don't have a car. You have a way to get from point A to point B that you don't have to think about. Mm-hmm. You don't have a car until it breaks down. Oh, yeah, yeah. And then all of a sudden, everything that a car is that fits in the category of car reveals itself to you mm-hmm. as this massive problem that's going to cost all of this money and you know nothing about it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like as long as it's serving you true and safe, you don't have to think about it. Mm-hmm. It doesn't actually fit the named category, it fits some other functional category. Mm. I really hope that makes sense to everyone. Cause that's, uh, that, that, that really, that when you said that I was just like, that kind of really hmm. hit me. I was like, I don't think about my car. Right. Like I'm going to go to Matt's. Okay. So I go, I get in my car, but I'm not thinking about anything of that sort. I'm just thinking of like, I'm going to Matt's. Right. It's a way to get to Matt's. Yeah. It's not a car, mm-hmm. but right now I have a flat tire and I've got a screw in my tire airing up for the last five weeks. <laughs> you know, it's like, so I'm definitely more aware of talking like, about postponing problems. Yeah, totally. No, there's, there's a, there's a hole. And that tire is going to go flat in a rainstorm <laughs> totally. when you've got all five of your kids uh-huh. and like, like two tons worth of stuff in the back of my pickup too. Probably. That sounds pretty badass though. Like I got two tons worth of stuff like a rock. Oh, you drive a Toyota. What is the Toyota? <laughs> yeah. I got Chevrolet like a rock. Or is it Ford? I don't know. I don't know either. Ford tough. Ford tough. Yeah. Chevy like, okay, let's not go there. Um, yeah. Well, it's kind of mind blowing. And I think you, it, it reveals itself to you sometimes, you know, because you use your own car so much mm-hmm. 
Um, oh, this is a great story, actually. <clears throat> okay. I'll try to make the, I'll try to bring this back around <laughs> to being interesting. But in high school, I was at this event, um, and the event was over, and there's a bunch of people there, and everybody's getting in their cars, and this mom who was there went out to her car, and she got in the car, and the car was full of things that weren't hers. And huh? she was like, what the crap? We're in high school, so I won't curse. And... <laughs> um, she got out and she kind of, the few of us who were still hanging around, she was like, I don't know what, is this a prank? Like what's going on? Mm -hmm. And, um, <clears throat> we were, I don't know how we were able to piece it together that she and one of the high school girls had the same green Ford Explorer hmm. and the keys happened to be the same. Whoa. And yeah. this was before clickers, I mm -hmm. think. And so, yeah. so the high school girl is at night. Mm -hmm. She just went, got into her car and drove home. <laughs> it wasn't her car, mm -hmm. you know, it was full of someone else's stuff, but she just didn't notice yeah. because she wasn't getting into a car. Mm -hmm. She was getting into going home, mm -hmm. you know, and didn't notice. And so, you know, she drove back and they switched cars and it was funny and all of that. <laughs> but, you know, I think <clears throat> when you do something habitually like that and it becomes a means to an end rather than an object, Mm -hmm. sometimes that will like jump out at you in ways that shock you. Mm. Like you get into your car and you notice getting into your car, mm -hmm. maybe because, you know, have, have you ever gotten into your car and someone else has driven it before you mm -hmm. and you're getting into the car and you're not aware of that, even though you know it and you get in and you sit down and all of a sudden your consciousness kicks into gear. Something's off. What mm -hmm. is it? Is it the seat? Is it the mirrors? Is it the, I don't know what it is. Something's like all of a sudden you're aware I'm getting into this object that is a car. Mm -hmm. All of a sudden it transforms into a car. Yeah. It's also like, I think with people too, like I think of like Allison, like she's my wife, the mother of my children. And it's like, she kind of fits these categories <clears throat> and I interact with her as sort of a symbol of these categories, you know, and, and, and then you're like, Oh, Hey, you're a person like our, my kids the mm -hmm. same way. It's yeah, like sometimes I, they emerge out of the category structure mm -hmm. as individuated. Yeah. It's like, like Hannah is this person, you know? And that's like, I kind of, she just kind of fits that category of who she is. But then all of a sudden, like you kind of drop that for a second and you see the person as more complex and there's things that you didn't see before that are, are present in there that, that, are not part of that simplistic right. like framework that you've given it, you know, right. um, it seems like that's, I mean, again, I, I think there's also, those are, those are very helpful, but then there's also a point where we need to reevaluate and readdress those categories or symbols that we have and put, put mm -hmm. in our lives, you know? Yeah. I mean, I wonder if I can make a pivot because yeah, I'm, it's not it. even much of a pivot. I'm, mm -hmm. I'm just thinking about Vaclav Havel's power of the powerless mm. in which he describes ideology as the lens through which reality is interpreted mm. to the system. And I'm wondering if I can fill out all of these words because I, I, it sort of takes reading his book, I think, but mm -hmm. he describes the system as, you know, the, the, the post-totalitarian world 
meaning that totalitarianism can take a bunch of different forms, like a dictatorship is one. But you don't need a dictator. You don't need totalitarianism by, by force of power. It can emerge without that. And so he uses the word system to sort of describe the thing that's imposing uh, the totalitarianism. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that ideology is the lens through which reality is interpreted to the system. And so it's as if the system only sees what ideology reveals, mm-hmm. which is to say only what fits in the categories that are recognized. And the thing is, while categorization is useful and necessary, it is not capable of describing the world. Mm-hmm. Not fully. Because your wife and your child and your car, for that matter, at times will emerge from behind the categories as something totally different. And you're mm-hmm. like, whoa, oh, yeah, you. Or, oh, right, you're a car and a massive liability at all times. And, you know, things reveal themselves as more than what they were functionally to you. Hmm. Hold on. So you're making the, the sort of analogy that, you know, like in totalitarianism or dictatorship, they don't allow things to emerge outside of the categories that are given. Um, well, right. Yes. Right. Okay. So I think it's kind of why I've said, I wondered aloud if I can fill this out. So take the example of let's take some current examples. Like we think we know somewhat something about someone by whether or not they are wearing a mask in a particular situation. Hmm. Who they are really has nothing to do with that almost, Mm -hmm. but we're going to functionally categorize them as you know, masker or anti-masker, mm-hmm. vaccinated or, or anti-vaxxer. Mm-hmm. And that's what's important to us. Mm-hmm. And we forget that behind that categorization is a fully a full human being and all of the infinite complexity that comes with that. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, right, but you might not be vaccinated by, right, you're also my brother. Mm-hmm. You're also my sister, my mother my neighbor, my lover, mm-hmm. you know, it's like you fit into all of these other categories mm-hmm. and even beyond that you're unique cause you surprise me, you know, mm-hmm. all of the time. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and, and Havel, Vaclav Havel makes the point that it is, it is, um, the individual is the only thing and the creativity of the individual is the only thing that can break totalitarianism because that's the thing that isn't allowed within totalitarianism. He actually makes the point really beautifully. He says that, you know, if, if totalitarianism relies on ideology to reveal the world, then it is a lie. Hmm. And in order to function within that state of being, you have to live, you don't have to necessarily believe the lie. Mm -hmm. You just have to function within it. Mm -hmm. And once you're not within it, you're, outside of it and thus against it. Um, but the, the, the thing that makes a lie, a lie is the existence of the truth. Mm. And so that he, I think he says, uh, 
the truth is woven into the fabric of a lie. Mm. It's an interesting way to say it. Mm-hmm. But so it's the creativity and uniqueness and surprising uniqueness of the individual is, is the thing which can break the lie. Yeah. And the thing which can remind us, you know, oh, right, you're driving a car. Mm-hmm. Oh, right, you're my wife. And also you. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So let me see if I if you kind of correct me where I'm, if I'm not getting it. Um, so I see this kind of as you were as you were describing it. You know, we want we want things to fit into categories. Like we believe all Republicans are like this, all Democrats are like this, and so when we interact with with people, let's just use Republican Democrat, you know, and we have these assumptions about what that means then we don't allow for anything that is more complex out of those assumptions of, of the labels and symbols that we've put on top of that. So like you were saying, like, yes, this person is a Republican. They're also a father. This person's a <clears throat> Democrat, but they're also a mother or a businesswoman or, uh, uh, an athlete, you know? Uh, and so it's like, we start to kind of like, we start to kind of, simplify things into a category that's not that that's not useful in most circumstances you may but in the way that i voted you know that's useful it's like who did you vote for i voted for this well generally that means there's a certain category that you do fit in you know it's Mm -hmm. like that's helpful but (laughs) but when those categories become too narrow it actually becomes dangerous because the, our world starts to become binary as far as like, even like you see this with racism too. It's like all white people are like this, all black people are like this. It's, it's, it's such a narrow, like narrow viewpoint. Like, I mean, a lot of people believe like, uh, you know, especially black people are, are Democrats, you know, it's like, if you're not a Democrat, then, you know, there's tons of, really <laughs> then you're not a black person. <laughs> yeah. There's horrible things that people say about that. Yeah. It's like, it's like, no, it's like, there's, there's lots of categories we fit under and it's like, you don't, you can't, you can't, you can't, well, there's so, there's so much, like, there's so much at play here because mm-hmm. it's like, I think the answer to all of that is somewhat. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can't function without categories, yeah. but categories also blind you to things. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting because the the intersectional coalition is making this point, mm-hmm. but only in an ideological way, mm. which is to say at the expense of everything else. Like mm. they'll say it's, you know, it's really important that we look at all of the overlapping categories mm-hmm. so long as you're in a group that we deem to be oppressed. Yeah. So it's really your skin color and your gender and your, uh, um, sex and uh, political beliefs, the way that those interact with each other really matter. Especially, you know, if you're a black woman in the LGBT community. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but but then it won't recognize the fact that it is also really... that that those overlapping categories are also communicating something in, in the fact that you fall outside of the ideological hierarchy of intersectionality. 
like your point, like a black Republican, Mm -hmm. you know, that short wires the system Mm -hmm. that doesn't fit within the ideological representation of reality. And so it must not be included. Mm. And so that's, so that's how you can come up. That's how Joe Biden can say a phrase. Like if you ain't, uh, if you ain't voting for me, you ain't black. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's a logically asinine sentence. This has, those two things have nothing to do with each other. Mm Mm-hmm except within a particular view of reality. Yeah. And, you know, and then on the backs of, back of that, you get people saying, well, you know, Kanye West isn't black because he mm-hmm. supported Trump. Yeah. Or um, <laughs> what was the one from this last week? Con- Condoleezza Rice is a foot soldier for white supremacy. <laughs> yeah, it's all that. It was on The View or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> My favorite response to that was... Uh, Dr. Rollergator on Twitter mm-hmm. tweeted, foot soldiers, what is this, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles? That's <laughs> <laughs> so good. <clears throat> but yeah, these, these, you know, underneath the categories exists uniqueness. Mm-hmm. And you can, you can further categorize. You can further say, oh, right, I forgot you fit within these other categories too. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think Peterson also makes the point that the, the intersectionalists get something right in that you can continue subcategorizing people down to the level of the individual. Mm-hmm. Every individual is unique. They exist in their own category in a, in a, in a subset of all existing categories. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if you want to play that game, you can take it all the way down to the level of the individual. And which we've done in the United States as far as like, you know, bill of rights. Yeah. It's but like these rights are inherent in the individual. We didn't get there through intersectionality. We mm-hmm. got there through religion. Mm-hmm. And it's almost like, I think we've made this point before. Like if you're earnest about any endeavor, you're going to end up reinventing religion essentially. Mm-hmm. And you're going to forget. It's like, you'll forget how you got there too. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Cause it'll take, it'll take generations. Yeah. Because we always, we always have to lean on the order, the structure, the categorization that we inherit when we emerge onto the stage as conscious individuals. Mm-hmm. And we can kind of fight against that and tear it down and reinvent it. But you're always going to end up, if, if you're, if you're trying to do something good, you're always going to re- end up reinventing something that will look t- like, will look to future generations like, um, like religion or like superstition or like something that doesn't fit within their idea of objective, verifiable. It it just makes me think about the distinction we drew earlier between illness and is it physical or psychological? Mm. It's like, we want it to be physical because mm-hmm. then we think there's something you can do about it. Yeah. There's a shot or a pill that can right. take care of that, you know? Right. What if it's psychological? Well, that's a problem. Mm-hmm. Well, there's a pill for that, but that's, but that's also, that's also, you're still dealing with the physical aspects, not the psychological mm-hmm. aspects mm-hmm. of it. And sometimes dealing with the physical aspects allow you to deal with the psychological aspects. Um, so there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of roads a lot of roads with this, you know, as I was just, as you were talking about that, I was thinking about Sam Harris is like, 
you know, he's kind of gotten into the meditation thing. So I feel like even with his like super hyper logical world he lives in, it's like he kind of had to find something that was, um, that kind of fit that spiritual component. And I I feel it's, it feels like meditation. He's really over the last five years, has really gone deeper into that space. And when we did that podcast about Brett Weinstein and Harris's, you know, free will and, and, uh, and determinism, it's like, you saw him kind of do that in that discussion also, where he kind of said like, yeah, you kind of, you don't have free will, but you kind of sit outside yourself and you observe yourself. It's like, you're kind of describing a, a, a free individual outside, even as an observer. Mm -hmm. Right. And so it's, it's, it's really fascinating. We kind of, if we don't, if we don't allow that aspect of the best word for it is a spirituality of some sort. And that's the only word you can try to reframe it in however you want to, but it does, it just, (laughs) you end up describing the same category. It did describe the same category. I think that's probably what Peterson's point to Sam during their discussions was like, was like you, you just can't get away from the idea of value or even in the book, the, um, reading or I'd read with, uh, uh, Connor Wendy, I think it's Shoal as, as her, as her name, the market, uh, mind market or something. So like the that. book you're reading is a book written by a woman mm-hmm. who that woman's real life character was adopted or mm-hmm. adapted into the character of Wendy Rhodes on the show billionaires. Yes. Right. Mm-hmm. Or billions. Yeah. Billions. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Anyways, but there's this whole, there's this whole thing of like, as evolutionary speaking, like we really, and again, sometimes I feel like she kind of confuses intuition and emotions and I, I, I might be missing this too, but you kind of get this, we've kind of like throughout history before we kind of had the logic and the language and the things we now have to describe things, everything kind of originates from this sort of emotional or intuition based structure that we then explain into mm-hmm. existence mm-hmm. Uh, to better to identify and 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 to be able to work with, but really, like if we really are, I think honest with ourselves is like there's so much that we're acting out of this unknown part of ourselves, like the unconscious, you know, that our subconscious that we don't really understand, and then we act it out into the world, right. and when we act it out, then we're able to name it and maybe identify what those things were that we're acting out. And I I feel like that's parts, that's a part that we don't acknowledge so much. We want to say like the words, the science. And it's like, it's like, there's so much that we don't understand that we have to act out into the world in Mm. order to understand the name. And that's something that's continual and something that we have to continue to act out and name. And, but the, really the base layer is not logic that's sort of like, it comes way down the road. I I remember I used to be able to say all these levels, but, um, Oh man, semantic. Oh, now I have to go back and look at it. It's all that it's, it's sort of like where myth and and religion and philosophy and these, these things, there's kind of like an order of things of how we, uh, you can see this in child psychology specifically. It's like you follow, Nope, I can't do it. Sorry. It's, 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 <laughs> okay. it's been too long since I've yeah, looked at it. So. I'm trying to remember as well, but yeah. it's a, it's a description of how knowledge emerges, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. And that we kind of, we, we, at some point we start acting it out and putting it into sort of literature and stuff like that. But it's really, it's more of, 
it's more developing from an, uh, of a place that we don't really understand. It's sort of like the unknown. It's like the ocean mm. and, and the shores. And we slowly bring it in and incorporate it into our island. Yeah. And it's almost like we've kind of inversed it. Like we've, we're, we're starting with an island first and then building mm. out into the ocean. But it's really, uh, it's really the opposite. It's like we go out into the ocean and bring stuff in and build the, build the island. Hmm. That's, that's a really great way to put it. Mm-hmm. Modern man starts with the island. Mm-hmm. And you forget that everything that exists on the island was delivered from the ocean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, emerged. Mm-hmm. You know, whether it was through like a, a storm or a volcano or you know, yeah. years of currents pushing sand into a... <laughs> yeah, I was listening to a... <clears throat> I think Scott Adams was interviewing Bjorn Lomberg about climate change. Um, And he was dispelling a lot of the very prevalent myths about climate change. And one of the things he said is that, you know, we have these fears that ocean levels are going to rise and swallow up land masses that people live on. And actually the data that we have Mm -hmm. shows that in places where sea levels have risen, land masses have gotten bigger Oh, fascinating. Because as they rise, generally these islands are built, are, they, they form on coral reefs. Mm-hmm. And as the, the I, I can't explain it the way he did, but as uh, the water level rises, the reef, sort of some of it breaks and dies and recycles and regrows and collects new silt and whatever, and the landmass actually grows with the water. Yeah, that sounds so logical. Yeah, I mean, it, you could just you can just see it even like if it's rising, it's also going to be going deeper and bringing more stuff up too. Yeah. It's like, yeah. Oh, that's fascinating. He's a really good listen if you Bjorn Longboard. You, know, mm-hmm. you know, it's like if you have an open mind, just to kind of consider because again, we come down to the categories. Like you know, it's like he's considered a climate denier, which he is not, <laughs> you know, it's like, he's I like, wonder, it's more complicated than that. That's why that's his whole I point. I almost want to do an episode on climate because there's so much, there's so like so many of the things that were fascinating to me about the COVID thing, like the unwillingness to change risk assessment. I see in the climate hmm. discussions, mm-hmm. like even what you just said, he's a climate denier. Yeah which is such a funny thing to say, but this is what we're saying these days. Yeah. Climate denier. It's like you deny climate exists. You know, why are we, uh, why are we saying this? Yeah. The, the words don't make sense together. Uh-huh. It would make better sense to say a climate change denier, mm-hmm. but actually no one in the climate change denier camp denies climate change. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. it's like we've done these redefinition Olympics to get to something that we can categorize you to, into that you can't argue with because it doesn't make sense in the first place. Mm -hmm. It simply serves to say, you disagree with us. You're not with us. You're outside of the mass formation. Or even like with Bjorn, Bjorn it's like, uh, you know, it's like he doesn't deny that humans have an impact on the planet. Right. It's more about, we don't know exactly how much of an impact. Right. Well, he just points out simple things Mm -hmm. like, um, like, yes, the temperature's rising, mm-hmm. you know, and, and people are worried about heat deaths. 
Mm-hmm. But temperature rising actually means less people die mm-hmm. because 10 times more people were dying of cold deaths before. Mm-hmm. We just don't, for, for very complicated reasons, we don't talk about cold deaths. Mm-hmm. And he, he can do a good job explaining about why that is. But um, we talk about heat deaths. Mm-hmm. So we're only looking at the one side of the picture saying we need to reduce heat deaths, keep the heat down, forgetting that if, if you care about the most people living possible, you would want the temperature to go up. Mm-hmm. And people don't like this. Yeah. You don't want to hear it. Mm-hmm. But I mean, that's it. We should. We should hear that. Because mm-hmm. to Alex... Is it Alex Epstein? Mm-hmm. His point. It's like, you know, it's like, what is the axiom that you care about? Do you care about human beings flourishing, or do you care about something else? Because mm-hmm. if you care about human beings flourishing, then we should look at how to reduce the total number of deaths. And yeah. that's going to be. And, and if you if you if if that's your goal, and then you reach a conclusion that goes against your your priors, then, and that's a problem. Well, that's a problem. <laughs> well, I, th- I think we uh, shouldn't have gotten into climate change. Yeah, but I think uh, again, kind of just going back to the main point of the main point of what we've been talking about is is like we try to fit people into these really tight categories when it's actually a lot more complex, right? You know, there are people that are actual Nazis, <laughs> you know, right. and there's there are people that that do, but the people that actually fit those categories are 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 fairly fairly small that that are on that extreme edge you know Mm -hmm. it's like most of us are pretty complicated and have a lot of nuances to our viewpoints and how we see things i I love brett and heather weinstein's Mm -hmm. they they always say welcome to complex systems (laughs) when you were saying something earlier about um acting things out Mm-hmm. You have to act things out to know them. It's like you have to act them out before you can articulate them. Yeah. And there's something really beautiful to me about that because it, it describes the necessity of being embodied. Mm-hmm. Like your consciousness, your knowledge is embodied within your body and interacts with the world through your senses. Mm-hmm. And there's something about how when you try to do something in the real world, um, whether it's like, learn to play an instrument or build a piece of furniture or mm-hmm. <clears throat> fix something, fix a car that's broken. You try to do something like this. That's not, you know, intellectual, um, abstract. It's like real world. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> I think you learn really quickly that if you get too focused on the, pro- the problem that you think you're trying to solve you will often come up with a solution that solves your problem to great destruction to some other part of the car Mm -hmm. or the um, instrument or the piece of furniture that you weren't paying attention to. Mm -hmm. And then you're like, Oh, well that was a learning experience. I was, I I totally forgot about, you know, Mm -hmm. this. Totally. Yeah. And you kind of have to, to understand that you have to embody it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, again, I think that's that's where you know I think marriage and having kids is so valuable. It's mm-hmm. like right. there's something about embodying sort of our biological 
I would say this word, biological imperative is to reproduce. Hmm. It's like you, you encounter things that, that you might not have wanted to, and it causes you to change and to look at the world in a different way because it's no longer, it starts to challenge your, your own ideas and perspective of what you think the world is and looks like. And I think that it was just, was just, let's just come down to the more basic thing. That's what relationships are. That's mm-hmm. why we need to be, that's why we're relational animals in, mm-hmm. this, in a sense. And is that we need to be in relationship because it challenges us and we get the, and we test actually, is this, does this actually work? Cause when you're in a relationship, it shows you <laughs> really quickly <laughs> if something, if you're off, you know, or if you're on, it, it's, it's, if you, if you do have something that maybe other people are missing, it can also be illuminating in that sense too. Hmm. But it's like everything has to do with relationships. Yeah. You know, it's, it's how you relate to things and people and, and interact with them. And <clears throat> yeah, I think another really interesting question to ask is for what hmm. we want to change the climate for what mm-hmm. we want to wear masks for what, Mm-hmm. You know, I think that if you earnestly follow, and if you answer that question, you can sort of ask it again and then answer it again and ask it again and answer it again mm-hmm. and continue refining your answer deeper and deeper. Mm-hmm. And I think ultimately you will get to so that we can have flourishing relationships with one another mm-hmm. because that's where the ultimate meaning is to be found. Yeah. Well, that's kind of what it's all about. I mean, that's what we're, that's why societies are formed is so that we can sort of get along and have relationships. You know, it's like, mm-hmm. if that wasn't the case, then it's like, <laughs> I don't know how we would have, would have survived. <laughs> it's like, right, everyone's like right. out for themselves and, and everyone's an island unto themselves. And, right. you know, you know, which is interesting. It's another one of these things where if you sort of empirically, ask the questions, you might arrive at an answer like relationship is what matters. Mm-hmm. And it's like, what did you just do? Well, you just invented a primitive version of Christianity. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a broad stroke description of the Christian God is a God who cares to be in relationship with people. Mm-hmm. That that is the most important thing and for mm-hmm. them to be in relationship with one another. Yeah. It's like you've, you've just started on your task of reinventing religion. <laughs> That's fascinating. Yeah. It's like, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your mind, with all your soul and love your neighbor as yourself. Like there's something, it's just a relational aspect of Be that. in relation. It's like, what does that mean? Be in relationship. Yeah. It's like one is you can, you can kind of like maybe re, uh, re-symbolize it and like, like love, love truth or like, good or whatever it might be. Cause like, you know, again, like the different names of God, like love, goodness, father, you know, all these sort of like, there's a lot of symbolism along with, with the, the Christian, mm-hmm. you know, portrayal and stuff, you know, it's like, so it's really fascinating that there has to, there's this sort of idea that we kind of end up with like some sort of higher ideal that's beyond mm-hmm. us, you know? Right. And it's, and, and maybe the question that we get hung up on when we, 
discuss religion is is religion what's true mm-hmm. or is it a representation of what is most important to us mm-hmm. and is there a difference yeah. between those two things well i think that's that's one of the things that fascinates and motivates me the most it's like what what is that because like that's that's something i've never been able to get away from like um you know i'm a very skeptical person and like to question and punch things to death and poke holes in them you know mm-hmm. it's like but that's one thing i can never really let me i i may just kind of use a religious language i think that it does definitely do it the best is sort of like like what happens as nietzsche talks about if you get rid of god you know i, I think we've tried and tried and we we where we try all these workarounds, but there's no other symbol than God in, in the sense of like, you know, I am who I am, you know, something that's, that's un, unrepresentative. <laughs> it's like, we just, it's like, we cannot, no matter how many times we try to kill God, we just end up either recreating him in our image, which becomes something that is, uh, always, what does he call it? Uh, insufficient. You know, we create this image, like whether it would be like this sort of like code that you must follow and becomes like this sort of idol that we've created. And it ends up being just a corruption of, of who we are. So it has to be something that's greater than an idol, something that we cannot recreate, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think that's just one thing I've never been able to really poke a hole in and tear down completely. Yeah. What fascinates me, I've been fascinated by this idea, and we've talked a bit about it, of like, what does it mean for something to be true? Hmm. Does it mean that it's objective? And I think that I want to say that in certain cases, yes, but that's not enough. Hmm. It's not enough for something to be objective or verifiable. Mm -hmm. Um, It it also has to move us into the future. Mm -hmm. And this goes back to our the point we were making earlier about tension that we need to be in tension mm-hmm. we need we need to be under a certain amount of stress why so that we continue existing mm. why so that we can thrive why so we can be here for our friends and our family and why because that matters you know so there's something there's like an imperative of motion and an imperative of change and growth and change and growth toward what mm. and so for something to be true, I think it also has to move us into some future. And so if you ask the question, you know, well, is God true? Mm-hmm. Does he exist? And then you try to answer that in objective, verifiable terms. It's like you're not, you're not interfacing with the question on the right terms. Hmm. So, you know, it's easy enough to say, well, objectively, verifiably, no. Okay, well, let's dispense with the superstition then and, and get on with our lives as enlightened beings. Mm-hmm. But it's like, you know, I think Nietzsche described the death of God and, and we don't know what we're killing. Mm-hmm. We think that we're dispensing with something that didn't exist, but it was something which was serving a purpose that we don't understand. Mm. Whether it's objective and verifiable or not, it doesn't matter. It's true in that 
it's a representation of our path forward. Hmm. It's a representation of the goal of relationship. It's a representation of the goal of growth. Mm-hmm. And back to the question I think I asked earlier is, um, well, is God true or a representation of what we ultimately want? Well, I think just the idea of God also acknowledges that we don't know what we want. Yeah. Well, and I, as you were speaking earlier, I thought, you know, one common <clears throat> in Christianity, it's said that man is created in the image of God. Mm-hmm. And I'm not sure that it's so different to say that God is created in the image of man. Hmm. If man were all that man could be, hmm. you know, if we, if we were try- to try to describe who we could be, if we were all we know we could be, mm-hmm you would describe God, which is the same thing to say that we are created in the image of God, Mm -hmm. meaning we are not that yet, but we have that potential. And here we are back to reinventing religion. And, (laughs) you know, Jesus comes and does his miracles and then says to his disciples, you will do more than these. Uh So, well, you keep making me think of this. One of our, the proverb says, uh, you know, fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Yes. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's like there's something about that reverence. And I, and I don't think there's any other... I mean, I've, I've kind of seen like how there's different words and, and, and ideas you can maybe put in that space. But it doesn't seem like there's a higher... Cause like the fear of the Lord, like, what is that? There's like a reverence. It's like a reverence. It's not like, Oh my God. Ah! You know, it's like, it's, it's like there's a reverence for something that is greater than yourself. And there's an acknowledgement that I don't know what I, sh- what I should or think I know. And, and I think that's also where, I mean, I think that's how science flourished is in that same sort of spirit is sort of like, like, I don't know as I should know. So I'm going to suspend all my beliefs. I'm going to test this. Oh, look at that. Okay. It reveals more things that I don't know. Okay. I'm going to test that. So it's a sort of never ending, but there's always this sort of like reverence that you have for the unknown. It's not even necessarily what you, what you find out. It's more about what it, what more it reveals that you don't know. So it's like, I, I think like if you're a scientist, it's like, to find out what you don't know is almost more important than what you find out that is verifiable mm-hmm. or it, cause it's like, cause you also know that it's verifiable given these certain circumstances. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's not as important as what it tells you what it's not. And I think that's, I think that, I think that drives most. I mean, yeah, I see that in business too. It's like, it's not what I succeed at in business that really motivates me or, or, or drives me. It's like, it's the mistakes, the the hard things that have hmm. that have the most value to me, because they reveal to you what you didn't see earlier. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's discovery. There's there's like oh, you know, there's there's tears. <laughs> there's yeah. there's all well, kinds of stuff. That comes you know, back to the 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 car analogy. Hmm. The world is revealed when things don't go as they hmm. as you expect them to. Mm-hmm. What is true and safe is what doesn't need your attention Mm -hmm. and what doesn't need your attention doesn't 
really exist to you as it is. Mm -hmm. So the world is revealed through the unexpected. Yeah. So maybe this is a good point to leave it. Uh, I read you um, these two tweets before we started, but Mm -hmm. I want to end with them. So Anthony Pompliano, uh, who's a a big Bitcoin and crypto guy that you and I follow, Mm -hmm. uh, tweeted, um, see if I can do this from memory. Um, The more you learn, the more questions you should have. Mm -hmm. And I love that. It's not, it's not a, um, it's not like, oh, I've learned something. Now we need to have more questions. Mm -hmm. It's that the result of learning is a revelation of questions. Mm -hmm. And I've always found that to be true. It's like when you truly learn something, it's like you, you end up with one piece of knowledge and 10x more questions than you started with. <laughs> when you think about you and I, it's like, it's like, oh my gosh. And then I read this book, this podcast, and then like that podcast led me to this thing. It's like, yeah, oh my uh. right. <laughs> well, you, we all know it's part of like the, the, um, it's like the nectar of life. It's mm-hmm. the giddiness that you feel when you learn something because yeah. it's not that you learned something. It's that you learned something and via that process, the world revealed itself to you. And now there's tons more things to learn that mm-hmm. you didn't know were there to learn. Mm-hmm. So the more you're learning, the more questions you should have. Mm-hmm. And then Robert Breedlove, who's another guy that you and I have been following, um, who uh, has a a podcast called The What Is Money Show. And to all of you listening, um, if you are interested at all in Bitcoin and cryptocurrency, there's like nine hours of a conversation with him and Michael Saylor that is worth all of your time. Mm -hmm. Um, Anyways, so he responds to this tweet. So Pompliano tweets, the more you learn, the more questions you should have. And Robert Breedlove replies, a free mind never concludes. Hmm. And I thought that was really powerful. Mm -hmm. The more free you are to learn, the more questions you will uncover. And if your mind is concluding in some huge way, I don't think you're free anymore. Hmm. Yeah. Become a slave because you're not allowed to ask the additional questions that were revealed through the revelation of truth. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Dialogue and dogma come, come kind of next. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. All right. All right. Cheers. Cheers. Love Thanks you guys. for coming to the shores with us. For sure. <laughs> See y'all. Always. Always.